Acts 13 and verse 13. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Just an interesting note on that verse. That would become a serious source of contention between Paul and Barnabas later on in Paul's ministry. The fact that John had departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel, uh, the God of this people of Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years, until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony, and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, 
and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another Psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised, raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 43. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention in particular to the words of verse 38, you could say there's a definite sense in which Paul's sermon leads to this statement. This is a conclusion, you could say, that he's drawing from his sermon when he says, look at it, verse 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> I wonder today, who's preaching do you like? These days you can access just about any preacher in the world through sermon audio, or through other internet websites. And you're not restricted to preachers that are even alive. There's all sorts of Spurgeon sermons that are read on the internet. Indeed, you can get those on Sermon Audio too. More recently, relatively speaking, a website was created that posts hundreds of Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons. You like to read Martin Lloyd-Jones? I'd love to read that man's sermons. Well, there's a website where you can actually hear the man preach himself back when he was still in this world. Years ago, when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, I said on numerous occasions that the Sermon on the Mount is, in my opinion, the best sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived. 
So I guess I'd have to weigh in by saying my favorite preacher is Christ himself. The Apostle Paul would certainly rank a close second, and I suppose I'd have to say that Peter would rank right up there with Paul. Rather interesting to compare the sermon we just read by Paul in Acts 13 with Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. Their theme is the same. It's in verse 23 here in Acts 13. We read, Of this man's seed, that is David, of David's seed, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Peter begins in similar fashion. After giving an explanation for the phenomenon of tongues, he begins his sermon with these words. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. Well, you talk about a sermon that wasn't exactly aimed at pleasing an audience. Peter has just laid upon the Jews the greatest crime conceivable in the Jewish mind. Your whole purpose for existence is to bring forth the Messiah. And now he's come and you could do no better than to crucify him. Boy, that's a pretty hard hitting sermon. So Paul and Peter both focus on Christ. They both make reference to the death of Christ. Peter referring to that death as by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. Paul referring to that death as the fulfillment of the prophets, verses 27 and 29. They both draw from Psalm 16 in their proclamation of the resurrection of Christ. I find it interesting to note, however, that when it comes to their conclusions in their sermons, there is something of a marked difference between uh, Paul and Peter. Peter concludes with an emphasis on the person of Christ. Listen to his conclusion. This is found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, where he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's a powerful conclusion, isn't it? Basically, Peter's conclusion is that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Messiah the long-promised Messiah, that one that you took, that one that you rejected and you despised and crucified, God hath declared him to be both Lord and Christ. Paul's conclusion has a different focus in that he's placing an emphasis on the work of Christ, and especially is he placing an emphasis on what the sinner gains as a result of the work of Christ. Paul's conclusion begins in verse 
38 from the chapter we read, Acts 13. Listen to what he says. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. So both Peter and Paul's conclusions, you might say, communicate to us the glorious truths that the Lord does not ever want us to forget. The Lord's table, you could say, brings to our remembrance who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished and what we gain from that accomplishment. And what we gain from that accomplishment is what I want to focus on this morning in preparation for our time around the Lord's table. I've given the message a title today. You could call it Paul's Sermon on Forgiveness. Paul's Sermon on Forgiveness. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Could greater words and more gracious words ever be proclaimed? These are words that release us from the burden of guilt and the dominion of sin. I have to admit, as I was contemplating this verse, that scene came to my mind. John Bunyan's pilgrim, he's got that heavy burden on his back. And what is it that relieves him of that burden? The sight of the cross. The sight of Christ dying in his place. And all of a sudden, that burden drops off his back. He is set free. He gains assurance that his sins are forgiven. So these are words that we do well to think on this morning around the Lord's table. And let's think first of all on uh, number one, the need for forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. This is a fairly simple thing to draw out of the text by noting the complete statement. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Now, had there been any in Paul's audience that were so deceived as to think that they were righteous and in need of no forgiveness... <clears throat> Well, this conclusion wouldn't have done much for them. We're talking about forgiveness of sins. And so I suppose you could call Paul's sermon, in that respect, an evangelistic sermon. And if you read on down the narrative, you see that it made its biggest impact on the heathen Gentiles, who all wanted to hear Paul preach again. So thrilled were they at the prospects offered in this sermon on the forgiveness of sins. The Jews maybe not so much. Indeed, the Jews may have felt insulted by the very notion that they had need for such forgiveness. <coughs> but the thing we have to keep in mind here is that this sermon was preached in a synagogue. 
a synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. They came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. We read in verse 14. There were, of course, a lot of Jews, probably mostly Jews, in that synagogue, which means then, doesn't it, that Paul was not simply preaching evangelistically to lost heathen, he was preaching just as much to religious people. God's chosen, the Jews, as kinsmen in the flesh. And it goes to show you, doesn't it, that religious people basically need the same message as the heathen. And what is that message? It's the message of forgiveness of sins. John writes to Christians in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, if we, who is we? Well, John himself, the ones he's writing to, Christians, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Two verses later, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Show me a man or a woman, an adult or a child, anyone who will not admit sin, I'll show you a liar. Or a person who is at least self-deceived. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Paul's sermon, then, is an appropriate word for sinner and saint alike. Both need forgiveness. Both need forgiveness constantly. We all transgress the law, and we all fail to measure up to the demands of the law. And so this need for forgiveness becomes the backdrop to the gospel. We declare unto you glad tidings, Paul says in verse 32. But without the reality of sin and the need for forgiveness of sin, those glad tidings really become quite meaningless. But what a blessing the proclamation of forgiveness becomes to those who know in some measure the reality of sin and the guilt of sin that incurs and the misery that sin produces to those that have any kind of awareness at all of sin and its guilt and its misery, these words become glorious words, these words of forgiveness. Think of your own failures, Christian. Think of the things you could have done better. Think of the ways in which you've transgressed. Think of the times that the sin of unbelief has captured your heart and abode with you. Think of the times that you failed to demonstrate the love of Christ, whether it be to your children or your neighbors or your workmates or your lost siblings. Think of the breaches to your integrity. How many times have you had to heave a sigh toward heaven and then say to yourself, if only I had been a better Christian. Every sermon I hear exposes my sin. I can't think of a single message in which I've been able to say, that sermon has nothing to do with me. It may have a lot uh, to do with others, but not with me. I may have a lot of defects in my walk with the Lord, but I can take exception to that message. 
Now, it's against such a backdrop of solemn humiliation and a deep sense of unworthiness that Paul's message comes to revive your hopes that you really are a Christian. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Paul's gospel message was instrumental in planting many churches and in leading souls to Christ. And his message continues to be instrumental in ministering hope and encouragement to Christians who seem ready to give up the battle, as it were, out of a sense of despair. Do you not find in his declaration of forgiveness a sense of relief and renewed hope for your soul? Seeing then that Paul's sermon on forgiveness is such a practical message, given the constant need of Christians, let's move on in our analysis and think secondly on the certainty of that forgiveness. Okay? The certainty of that forgiveness. And I love the way Paul states the matter when he says, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. The word preached is worth underscoring in the verse. It carries the idea of being proclaimed. When something is preached or proclaimed, then it's being declared with a sense of bold certainty. Paul's purpose was not to guess or speculate on the matter of forgiveness, but to dogmatically proclaim it. Dogmatic preaching, you know, doesn't always win popular acclaim. It certainly didn't gain popular acclaim in Paul's day. I think it's with reference to the dogmatic nature of preaching that Paul refers to the preaching of the gospel as foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. It was foolishness to the Greeks because their favorite recreational activity was to argue and debate and speculate about just about uh, every philosophical topic that you could think of under the sun. Call to mind the statement that Luke makes in Acts chapter 17, about the Greeks at Athens. In Acts 17 and verse 21, Luke tells us, and this is interesting, this is a parenthetical statement, a by-the-way statement pertaining to the Greeks at Athens. He says, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. You could say, I suppose, there was an art to their telling, to their discussions and debates. It was the art of rhetoric. Paul did not condescend to their speculative practices. So we read in Acts 17 and verse 23, this is Paul now in Athens, addressing this group of so-called scholarly Greek philosophers, he says, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, 
to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Underscore that word declare. It's the same word as preach in our text. Paul didn't go to those Greek scholars and philosophers in order to enter into a discussion or a debate with them. He declared or preached or proclaimed to them the truth of Christ and the truth of Christ's resurrection. And so in his sermon here in chapter 13, he doesn't set forth the idea of forgiveness as some sort of speculative notion that a Christian can vaguely hope for. No, rather, he proclaims it. He announces it. He preaches it with dogmatic certainty. And in his proclamation, he's not simply setting out his own opinion based on his own reasoning because of his confidence in his own learning or ability to reason. If that were the case, he would be nothing but arrogant in his dogmatism. But you'll notice in his declaration that he sets before his hearers the grounds for his certainty. Here's why he could proclaim this with such dogmatic certainty. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. There's his authority, and there's his, certain, his certainty. It is through this man that the forgiveness of sins is preached. And if you carry the thought into the next verse, <coughs> you'll notice the emphasis on this man continues. Notice what it says there. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. You catch it there? And by him, through this man, and by him, all that believe are justified from all things uh, which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. So you see the focus or the emphasis in both those verses on Christ. It is through this man and by him that the blessings of salvation are gained. It is through this man and by him that Paul can state it dogmatically that you are forgiven for your sins. Now, when you read such statements pertaining to Christ, you should be moved to say that if forgiveness is through this man and by him, then what manner of man is this? Oh, here is a great man indeed, and here is a gracious man, and here is a kind man, and here is a loving man, and a powerful man. One of my favorite miracles that's recorded in the Gospels is that instance where you have uh, the four men who carry uh, a paralytic to Christ. They can't get to him because of the crowd, so they lift him up on the roof, and they do, uh, I suppose, what the owner of the home probably didn't appreciate much. They unthatched the roof, lowered the man down, so he's right in front of Christ. Christ can't possibly escape noticing him now. 
And the first thing Christ says to him is, son, be of good cheer. Your sins be forgiven you. And of course, that sets the Jewish crowd to scratching their heads and saying, uh, who does this guy think he is who has authority to forgive sins? But God only, who indeed. And then Christ, in order to demonstrate that he does have that authority, he commands the paralytic to rise from his sick bed, take up his bed, and go home, which the man does. He performs a miracle, and the performance of that miracle is not merely to heal a man of a, of a long-lasting physical defect. The reason behind that miracle is to prove that this man, Christ, does indeed have the authority to forgive sins. So doesn't such a dogmatic proclamation of Christ as the grounds for our forgiveness indicate to you that if you want strong assurance of sins forgiven, you'll serve yourself well by getting to know this man, Jesus Christ. The more acquainted you become with his character and his divine and human nature, then the stronger your, your assurance will become that your sins are forgiven. The more you'll recognize and appreciate the authority behind the declaration that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really starting to like Paul's sermon on forgiveness. Here's a sermon that reaches me where I am, for I'm in constant need of forgiveness. And here's a sermon that is proclaimed with dogmatic certainty, and it can be proclaimed with dogmatic certainty because that certainty is grounded in a glorious man, the God-man. Christ Jesus, who can and did secure this forgiveness by us, by his atoning death. Very thing we're called on to remember, his atoning death. Could I say a word next about the wideness of this forgiveness? It's wide, it's broad. In verse 38, it's forgiveness that's declared. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. But then notice in the very next verse, verse 39, it's justification that's declared. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. This takes us then to a stage beyond forgiveness. Now we're dealing with being declared righteous in spite of our sin. In our shorter catechism, the definition of justification given to us by the Westminster Divines includes forgiveness. Listen to that definition. This is in question 33. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Certainly in these verses in Acts 13, we see two ideas coming together in close proximity to each other, forgiveness 
and justification. And justification does add more to the blessing of forgiveness. It is through justification, you see, that you gain the righteousness that qualifies you for heaven. You remember Christ's words to the Pharisees? Accept your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter into heaven. You need righteousness better than that. Now, to the carnal eye, they appeared to be very righteous. In church, every time the doors were opened, you could say, uh, faithfully tithing, faithfully observing uh, every precept required of them. At least externally, they appeared so. And yet Christ says it's not enough. You need more righteousness than that. Where are you going to get that from? Well, it's got to come outside of ourselves. It has to come from Christ himself. And that's the glory of justification. It is through your justification that you gain the righteousness that qualifies you for heaven. It is through your justification that you are able to see your salvation in terms of God's justice being satisfied by the life and death of Christ, or to use the words of our text, through this man and by him. So these two things coming together, forgiveness and justification, constitute in large part your salvation. So Paul could say in his application, which takes place in verse 26, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, (coughs) and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. The concept of salvation by grace is also found in the narrative. This is not so much in Paul's sermon directly, as it is in the word of exhortation that follows this sermon. But look at verse 43, Acts 13. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So we can begin then, can't we, to pile up descriptions of Paul's sermon This is a salvation sermon. This is a sermon on forgiveness. This is a sermon on justification. It's a sermon on the grace of God behind salvation and forgiveness and justification. When Paul would preach a week later and the Jews would continue to resist, he would say to them in verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. So in addition to salvation, which includes forgiveness and justification and the grace of God, you could say that Paul's sermon, or sermons now, since this is a week later, pertain to life, everlasting life. Is it any wonder that he could say in verse 32, we declare unto you glad tidings. 
Glad tidings indeed when you consider the wideness of the blessings that are found in Paul's sermon. Aren't you glad that Paul preached this sermon? And aren't you glad Luke recorded it and the Holy Spirit inspired and preserved it? Preachers will let you down along the way. They are, after all, but sinners themselves who sometimes have to struggle greatly for their sermons. And it can't be denied that there are many occasions when their sermons just may not do all that much for you. Here's a sermon you can fall back on when that happens. You can make it your evening service sermon, if you will. Instead of visiting sermon audio or joining in a church service somewhere else in the world, go back in time and join that church service at Antioch and Pisidia and let Paul preach Christ to you and let him preach salvation to you and take in the wideness of the benefits of that salvation, which includes forgiveness and justification and grace and everlasting life. It remains for us to consider just one more point in our analysis. Consider fourthly and finally the means to this forgiveness. Now any sermon that's a good sermon will aim to accomplish something. A sermon, strictly speaking, you see, is nothing more than a persuasive speech. There should be in a sermon a decisive call to action. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua preached to the nation near the end of his life. What is Paul aiming for then in the sermon that we've been analyzing today? He's aiming at something very simple and yet very important. He's not trying to move his hearers to do great feats, nor is he aiming to motivate them to strive harder to keep God's laws. I'm sure he knew that those things would follow in due course. But what Paul is aiming for in his sermon is that his hearers would believe, that they would believe the gospel. Look at verse 39 again. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. There's his aim. He wants his hearers to believe. And there's God's aim. He wants you to believe. He wants you to believe in Christ, that he came and that he died in fulfillment of the prophets, and that he rose from the dead so that through him you could be forgiven, and by him you could be justified. Believe it. That's the aim of the sermon. Now, in one sense, this is something very simple because it's factual. Paul wants his hearers to believe the facts pertaining to Christ. But in another sense, it's impossible. Note the warning that Paul gives his hearers beginning in verse 40. Beware, therefore, 
lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, you despisers, and wonder, and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Oh, what a solemn warning. The Jews were called on to believe, and yet the prophets foretold the sad and tragic truth that they would not believe. And in failing to believe, they would count themselves unworthy of everlasting life. Now, in a sense, we're all unworthy of everlasting life. But in the case of the Christ-rejecting Jews, it was their pride and their unbelief that kept them from everlasting life. <clears throat> How I hope this morning that nobody here will fall into that category. Those that call themselves unworthy of everlasting life through their refusal to believe. I hope your pride and unbelief will compel you to flee to Christ rather than flee from Christ. To those who believe, all these blessings are secured. Those who believe will find the words of the gospel to be glad tidings indeed. Note in closing the words of verse 48, I hope you fall into the scope of this verse. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I wonder this morning, are you glad? Are you glad for a declaration such as this that says, through this man is declared unto you the forgiveness of sins? I can't deny it thrills my soul every time I read it. I see the need of it. Oh, Lord, how thankful I am for such a declaration. How thankful I am that there is an authoritative basis for this declaration. This isn't one man making this up. This is a man preaching with power. It ought to make your soul glad. I wonder today, are you ordained to eternal life? There's a very simple test you can apply to yourself to make your calling and election sure, and the test is this. Do you believe the gospel? Will you believe the gospel? To those who do and will, the word of Paul is certain. Your sins are forgiven, and you are justified, and life is your portion and your duty now is to continue in the grace of God. And what an opportunity the Lord's table affords us now this morning. By partaking of these elements, you are able to say to God and to everyone around you, I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me, that on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. Let's close then in prayer then before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee for such glad tidings.
We thank thee, Lord, for moving Paul to preach this sermon. And we thank thee, Lord, that it's grounded in the truth of Christ. It's not something that he concocted from his own imagination. Indeed, we know that there was an earlier time in his life when he sought to stamp out the message that he proclaimed. We thank thee that Paul met with Christ on the Damascus Road. From that day forward, he proclaimed Christ. And we thank thee, O Lord, that this sermon is recorded and inspired and preserved for our benefit, that we may know and know with certainty that through this man is preached unto us the forgiveness of sins. We thank thee, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. And we ask of thee now to draw near to us as we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.